Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is the book of Jude, verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of God to us. God. Amen. Thanks, Rhonda. Hey, guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's really fun to be with you today. It's been too long, so it's good to see old friends, meet some new friends, and I'm thankful for the invitation to be here. So if you've got a Bible, you can start finding Jude. If you're new to the Bible, that's at the end of the, old, of the New Testament. So if you want to, you can turn to the book of Revelation and then hang a left and you'll run into Jude in just a few pages. And uh, let me give you just a quick reminder. And part of me is like really delighting in the fact that A, I get to be here this week and B, that I don't have to preach the text from last week. So thanks, thanks for inviting me this week and not last week. I don't think I have another rep in me to preach that text at least this year. So uh, here's what we've been doing. If you've been with us walking through the book of Jude, here's what we found. This book opens up with the heart of your heavenly father. And the heart of your heavenly father is a heart that wants to multiply in your life grace, mercy, and truth. And the heart of your heavenly father who's for you and not against you in Jesus invites you into a life of contending for the faith once for all delivered. And what we found in the first week is that the essence of the faith, following Jesus, being a Christian, growing in faith, includes three strands. And the three strands of the faith need to stay together. If we unbraid the strands and we take one of the strands to the exclusion of the other two, we radically alter the essence of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. So the faith once for all delivered includes belief. That's the doctrinal substance of the faith. Who is God? What does it mean to be a human in his image? What does it mean to be a sinner by nature and choice? What has God done for us in his son, Jesus? What is it to become a Christian, to be born again? What's the hope of humanity? Where are human beings heading? What's the world for? That's the essence of the faith as it relates to belief. In addition to belief, the second strand of the faith is obedience. That's the moral substance of the faith. That's learning slowly with many failures and many setbacks to continue to offer our yes to Jesus, to follow him, to 
bear our cross, to say yes to Jesus and no to the world. And the third strand of the faith, which is essential, is the strand of love. Love, that's the relational substance of the faith. Growing in our knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus. Growing in our love for one another. The second week, it got really heavy. And we transitioned from the heart, of a, the heart of our Father to multiply his mercy, grace, and love to us to the heart of the Father warning us prophetically as Jude took us through the anatomy of apostasy. He unpacked for us what it looks like to walk away from Jesus to warn us so that we would be awake and sober and vigilant against the schemes of the enemy. Now today, the tone of our text is infinitely pastoral. It's the heart of God to practically help us. How do we remain in the love of God? How do we finish the race? The first day of your journey with Jesus matters, but the last day of your journey with Jesus on this planet matters even more. So how do you finish the race? How do you get to the finish line? How do you take your last breath in faith? And so today we get very practical and I'm gonna pray for you and ask you to pray for me and then we'll dive in and we'll walk through these verses together. Father, I love this church. Thank you that your presence and your grace is here. Holy Spirit, we love your ministry. We love that you're our teacher and our comforter. We love that you gift us and empower us to follow Jesus and to help each other. And we acknowledge before you today, God, that left to our own devices, we will wander away like sheep. We'll forget truth and we'll receive the counterfeit substitutes of this world that are no match for infinite beauty. And we pray today, Lord, that you would help us, that you would calibrate our hearts, that you would give us strength today to continue to persevere as Christians. And I pray for my friends in the room, Lord, that are trying to figure out what they believe, that are not yet followers of Jesus, that you would meet them today, that you would build them and encourage them and invite them and speak to them. So Holy Spirit, we love you, we need you, and I'm so thankful that we don't have to make you show up. You're here, and we receive your ministry to us today in your word. So feed us, we confess we're hungry. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hey, so if you've ever gotten into a sport, in particular, a really gear-intensive sport like riding bikes, you know that you need a mentor. You need somebody that's just a little bit ahead of the game to help you figure out all the things that you don't know that you don't know. Amen? Uh, especially true when it comes to riding bikes because bikes are really gear intensive. You need a friend that's been riding bikes for a while to help make sure that your bike fits you so so that you don't get hurt. Uh, You need a friend to unpack for you the goofy cycling clothes that people wear so that you know what to wear, especially having a padded pair of shorts so that you can walk the day after riding a bike, praise be to God. You need somebody that pulls back the curtain and takes you into the wonderful world of chamois butters so that you can select the right creams to avoid chafing, you need a mentor. And uh, it's been really fun over the last year to see my my wife get into riding bikes. And we've started doing on Fridays and Saturdays these long bike dates. And the first long bike date that I took my wife on, I was not a good friend and mentor to her. All right, she had just started riding bikes. She hadn't gone for many long rides. And I talked her into this amazing date that we would have where we would ride bikes for an hour, maybe two hours max. We would stop and get lunch. We'd party pace around town. We'd go to coffee shops. It would be amazing. We would talk and enjoy each other's company on bicycles. 
I cast so much vision for this that she was ready. I was like catalyzing vision for our bike date. Bike date shows up, bike date shows up, and I just blew it. I forgot to tell her that she should bring snacks. I forgot to talk to her about adequate water on her bicycle. We went on the bike date, and I totally screwed up the route because I was just having fun being on my bike with a pretty girl that's my wife. And so instead of this being a one-hour bike ride, we ended up having a three-and-a-half-hour bike ride. And instead of factoring in the reality of the weather, I was oblivious to the fact that we would be riding for two-and-a-half hours into 35-mile-an-hour Oklahoma headwinds, which is a soul-crushing beatdown on a bicycle. So we're riding bikes, and the tone of my wife is rapidly shifting from adoration and love to quiet hostility to not so quiet hostility. And the cherry on top of all this is that I had to catch a plane to fly to North Carolina to help our church plant there. And so I realized I was going to miss our flight because of my miscalculations. And so when we still had five miles to go on the bike day, I just had to ditch her, just leave her by herself. No food, no water, headwinds, questioning whether or not she had biblical grounds to divorce me. And I made the mistake, this is, so, this is such a rookie move, like if you've been married 24 years like I have, you shouldn't ask this question, but I looked at my wife wanting her to let me off the hook, and I just said, are you mad at me? <laughs> I know, it's so stupid. And, and her response was classic, like she just looked at me and shook her head and just said, I'm just so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Knife to the soul. No, my point in telling you that is that uh, Jude and the other writers of the New Testament, they're actually good guides to us. They're good guides to us. They want to coach us so that we know what we're getting into in the narrow road of discipleship. They don't want us to be surprised. And what Jude's going to do in our text today is he's going to explicitly warn us about the dangers we're going to face in following Jesus And then he's going to build us up to help us know what we need to do to exercise agency in following Jesus and growing. So take your Bible. He doesn't want us to be surprised. Look what he says in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's gonna add his warning to the other writers of the New Testament, warnings about the guaranteed reality of suffering. Don't ever trust a Christian blogger or a writer or a teacher or a podcaster that tells you that following Jesus is gonna be easy and smooth. Don't listen to them. We're warned in scripture that to follow Jesus is going to be a life that includes suffering. We're warned by the New Testament authors that a life of following Jesus will include the hostility of the world. Jesus himself told his disciples that the world will hate you, that if it hated me, it will hate you. So to follow Jesus, we will have moments in our life where the world doesn't understand us, where the world is outraged against us, where even dear friends and coworkers and family members will be baffled that you're following Jesus. We're warned that in this world, we'll endure spiritual warfare. 
Spiritual warfare is real, and I know that we have a post-enlightenment, weird, mythological view of the devil. In our mental picture, he's a guy running around in a red onesie that looks like he bought it for Valentine's Day. He's got a pitchfork and a little tail, but the Bible's really clear. There are powerful created beings that have fallen from grace, that don't love God, that hate God and hate God's people, and the devil himself is described as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in the midst of all those warnings about the narrow road, the difficulties, the external dangers, what Jude is going to add to those warnings is that to follow Jesus is to be surrounded in the church at times by false teachers and fake Christians, people devoid of the Spirit. Now, that's really important language because the only way that you can be a Christian is if the Spirit of God gives you faith in Jesus. And what he's saying is that there's people that will make a profession of faith in Jesus, but they've never really been born again. They don't obey Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They follow the world's plan for the good life instead of Jesus's plan. And what he's saying is that we have to be really aware. We need to have our eyes open and our ears open to the true faith of Jesus so that we don't get seduced and enamored by a counter vision of what it is to be a Christian a vision that's not a Christian at all. And he wants us to be equipped to face that challenge and that temptation. And so what he's going to do next is he's going to give us two big categories, two big categories to practically help us know how to contend for the faith. And category one is that Jude wants us to take responsibility for our own faith. He wants us to take responsibility for our own faith. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, listen to this. This is really important. From verse five all the way to verse 17, that's a lot of verses, Jude's been unpacking the danger of apostasy, false teaching walking away from Jesus, subjective faith where we don't follow the authority of Christ and his word, but we follow the authority of our own hearts and go down roads that are counter to the teachings of Jesus. He's warned us about this and he's been really clear. He's been really passionate, but now there's a shift. He says in verse 20, but you beloved, And I love that, but you, because here's what he's doing in this moment. He's saying to you and to me and to all Christians throughout all the ages until Jesus returns, that the most powerful and important way that we can contend for the faith, the way that we can contend for the essence of what it is to be a community of people on mission, obeying Jesus, is not by first and foremost being obsessed with pointing out error, But the way that we can most powerfully contend for the faith is to simply take responsibility for ourselves to follow Jesus and his word. He says, but you, but you, but you. And I love that he says that we're to build ourselves up in the faith. And the idea here is that we're to continue in the love of God. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. This is really interesting because throughout this book, we've heard, we've heard this word keep several times. And what we found in the beginning of the book is that we're being kept by God in the love of Jesus. And that's a reminder 
that it's God's strength, it's God's power that gets us into a relationship with Jesus. And praise be to God, it's God's strength and God's power that keeps us in that relationship. And that, that should mean that you and I can breathe, we can rest. It's not dependent on our own strength or our own power or our own intellect to get to the great day. God's promised that he that began a good work in you will complete that good work in you. And Jesus has warned us, or he's told us, that all those that the Father gives him will get to the end, to the great day. But that does not then mean that we have no responsibility. That does not then mean that we lack agency. And what Jude is saying in these verses is the best way to contend for the faith is that we have to keep ourselves in the love of Jesus. We are to make choices and to build rhythms and to inhabit our lives in such a way that the love of Jesus is the primary concern of our lives. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do we do that? Because it's really hard. Now, listen, if keeping yourself in the love of God just means good vibes or an emotional, sentimental idea of love, that's not hard at all. You just sort of think positive thoughts and you can make up whatever version of Jesus that you want to make up. And as long as it makes you smile, then awesome, you're doing great. The problem with that is that that is not the love of God. Here's what Jesus himself told us. If you love me, keep my commandments. And that's really challenging because I don't know if you've read the commandments of Jesus and the apostles, but they're not easy. It's difficult to love enemies. It's difficult. It's difficult to forgive those that hurt you. It's difficult to choose the road of Jesus when the road of Jesus includes being shamed, being mocked. It's hard to give Jesus your yes when what your flesh wants and what your flesh thinks it needs to be happy is against the commands of Jesus. So it's hard to keep ourselves in the love of God. And what Jude's going to do is he's going to unpack for us how we can do that. And he gives us some categories. We're to build ourselves up in the faith. That's the first thing he says. This simply means that no, no person has ever come out of the waters of baptism as a fully formed, mature Christian. That doesn't happen. Did it happen to anybody in this room? Like you met Jesus, whether that was as a teenager or an elementary age student or in college or in your 30s, you met Jesus and all of a sudden you just got like the microwave treatment of sanctification. You went zero to 60 you knew the commands of God, you were all in on following Jesus, you knew how to read the Bible, and everybody just started showing up at your house, and you were more prolific in your Bible study materials that you wrote than Beth Moore. (laughs) No, that doesn't happen to any of us. In fact, if you're a parent, you know that it would be absurd to bring a little baby home from the hospital and then be mad at that baby that it's not doing its part for the family chores around the house. That would be an abusive, terrible parent you know that what you expect from an infant is very little. You just want to keep that little person alive. What you expect from a two-year-old is very little. It's a little more than what you expect from an infant. Like, let's not bite people. Let's not stab our friends. What you expect from a 13-year-old is a lot more than what you expect from a two-year-old. And if your expectations aren't being elevated, if a 13-year-old doesn't have responsibilities around the house, then you're actually training a terrible citizen. Are you with me? And what he's saying when he says that we're to build ourselves up in the most holy faith is that nobody comes fully formed in their journey with Jesus. In fact, what we have to do is take great 
initiative, responsibility, and intentionality in our spiritual formation. Let me make you a guarantee. I can promise you this one thing. I'm not a prophet. I don't know what's going to happen in the next election cycle. I don't know how long the Western world's going to keep going. I don't know any of that stuff. Things seem really crazy, but let me make you a money-back guarantee. I promise you before God and man that if you just float through life for the next 12 months, no intentionality about your rhythms of discipleship, no intentionality about God's word, no intentionality to be with God in prayer or be with God's people, no intentionality to to take responsibility for your faith, I promise you in 12 months, you will not be more spiritually mature and obedient to Jesus than you are today. In fact, here's the guarantee. Five years ago in culture, if you were just barely intentional as a follower of Jesus, you could kind of maintain a little bit of homeostasis. You would sort of stay in the flow because culture was moving like the lazy river. Today, culture is moving like a rapid stream in the mountains after a snow melt. If you're not intentional to take responsibility for your faith, you will move away from the things of Jesus, not towards the things of Jesus. And let me just say, like in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a new sermon series about building yourself up in the faith. We're going to talk about rhythms of grace, which is simply spiritual disciplines that we don't do to get God to love us. We do to know the love of God for us. We don't read the Bible to get God to love us. We read the Bible to keep ourselves in his love. We don't pray to get God to love us. We pray to keep ourselves in God's love. We don't incorporate rhythms of fasting and feasting and silence and solitude and gathering with God's people on Sunday and scattering in community groups to remind each other of God's word and confessing sin and all the various ways in which the people of God have been engaging spiritual formation since the very beginning. We don't do any of those things to get God to love us. We have his love in Jesus. But we do all those things to keep ourselves in his love and to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. And I just want to say, like, we live in a moment where it's so easy to blame everybody else for our spiritual anemia. I want to encourage you, don't do that. If you're not growing in your faith, it's not your pastor's fault. It's just not. Like, you can be at a church with a terrible pastor and you can still grow. You can be at a church where the Bible teaching is weak and you can still grow. You can be at a church that has a ministry model that you think is dumb and still grow. Don't blame other people. What Jude is saying is that we're to take responsibility for our own formation, to keep ourselves in the love of God, to actually exercise agency in seeking to grow as a follower of Jesus. How do we do this? Well, we build ourselves up in the faith. In addition, we pray in the Holy Spirit. He says, in praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, like, I think the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, is wonderful. It's a great gift, and I think you should desire it and pray for it. Uh, God might give you that gift. Uh, I try to pray in tongues as often as I can because I'm so weak and frail, and I need to be built up in my spirit, man. But when Jude says praying in the Holy Spirit, he's not just talking about praying in tongues. He's talking about all the ways in which God the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. And if you read the Bible, here's what you find is that there's all kinds of different ways to pray. And as long as the spirit of God is in your life, helping you pray, then all of those ways are beautiful. Sometimes spirit filled prayer looks like lamenting. 
even complaining before God. Sometimes it even looks like questioning God. Like, what are you doing and where are you? Sometimes it looks like celebration before God, just simply offering gratitude and praise. Sometimes spirit-filled prayer looks like crying out to God on behalf of a person that you love that the Spirit of God is reminding you of. Sometimes it's a mom praying for a child with burden. Sometimes it's a husband praying for a wife with burden. Sometimes it's a friend praying for a friend. Sometimes spirit-filled prayer is really big. It's when we are burdened by God to pray for the nations. There's so many different ways to pray, but what Jude is saying is unless the Spirit of God is in our lives, it's going to be impossible to pray. And if the Spirit of God is in our lives, he's always leading us to speak to God, to worship, to petition, to repent, to intercede, to commune, to enjoy God. Prayer is the lifeblood of a Christian because prayer is simply enjoying the benefits of what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. That we have the ear of our Father, that Jesus is interceding for us, that we're not alone even when we feel lonely. So we're to build ourselves up in the faith, we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. And then he says a really interesting one. One of the ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God is waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Um, Does anybody else in the room hate waiting? I hate waiting. I, I love Amazon Prime. I am concerned about all the things you hear about the factories and the warehouse conditions and all that's probably stuff that we should pay attention to. But my goodness, I ordered, I ordered a mount to hang a European mounted deer skull. I ordered it yesterday. It's going to be at my house when I get home. That is amazing. That is incredible. I do not like to wait. And yet what Jude is saying is that waiting for the mercy of God is one of the ways that we actually develop depth and maturity as Christians. This is an active kind of waiting. It's a waiting that stands in the present, remembers the past, what God did for us through the cross and resurrection, and that in the present navigates your choices and your decisions in light of what God has promised is coming for you in the future. And I want to talk about how important this is because in a culture of instant gratification where we can have almost any pleasure we want at the click of a button, where we can do almost anything we want without limitations, boundaries, and borders, waiting is one of the most powerful and maturing spiritual disciplines that we can engage in. Think about it like this. Let's just set up a scenario that happens all the time in our church where a husband and a wife are in a marriage that's not exciting, that's not easy, where communion is just not clicking and intimacy doesn't feel like it's hitting on all cylinders and conversation doesn't feel really great and it just feels like there's distance and there's a gap. And what's happened many times in our church is in that kind of marriage where it's like, hard and difficult and the luster's worn off and it feels like none of the things that you would define as love on your wedding day are the things that you're experiencing on an emotional level. And you're in this moment and you feel this gap and then all of a sudden you start to suspect that the grass is indeed greener on the other side of the fence. A person comes into your life at work who takes an interest in you that makes you feel excited and seen. And there's somebody in your life that doesn't feel like they would be as complicated or have as much baggage as your spouse. 
And you start to think about all the what ifs and what it might be like. And then maybe you even take some steps that nobody other than you would know are even inappropriate. And you start to position yourself at the water cooler or at the coffee stand to have that brief interaction. And that brief interaction starts to create a real deep excitement and anticipation. It starts to replace some of the dull feelings that you have for your spouse. Okay, track with me. Waiting on the mercy of God is standing at the crossroads where to give Jesus your yes is to obey him and stay in a marriage that may be difficult and frustrating and even disappointing. And to stay in that marriage with a posture of loving pursuit of your spouse and doing your own work instead of blaming your spouse on all the problems. In fact, giving your yes to Jesus in that context feels like dying. And giving your no to Jesus, turning the other direction away from Jesus, feels like that's where the life would be. That's where the excitement would be. That's where the joy would be. Now, we can paint a thousand different scenarios where you're at the crossroads. You're at the crossroads. And to say yes to Jesus is to say no to yourself, to deny your flesh, to take up your cross, to do something that other people would even think is crazy. And what the scripture teaches us is that the only way that we're ever going to do that is if we really believe that every desire inside your chest is ultimately going to find its deepest and most real fulfillment, not in this life, but on the great day of the Lord, when you see Jesus face to face and you realize that no difficult step that you took in following Jesus was ever wasted, that he was infinitely worth it and always will be. How do you live as a single in celibacy and deny your flesh when you want physical touch and connection and loneliness to be answered? How do you do that? It's so hard. And I feel such a deep burden for those of you that are single in our church because I think it's harder now than it was even 10 years ago. And it was hard 10 years ago. How do you do that? How do you offer Jesus your celibacy? Well, you have to know that anything that you're saying, anything that you're saying no to in this world is not unseen by Jesus, but ultimately there are infinite rewards coming to you in Jesus that it's worth it. Waiting on the mercy of God knows that, hey man, like maybe saying yes to Jesus is saying no to making extra money that might give you the things that you think you need to be happy. Saying yes to Jesus is saying sometimes no to certain pleasures and appetites that would give you an instant sense of relief. And we do so if we really know that what's coming for us is real and it's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's worth whatever Jesus asks us to endure. So he wants us to take responsibility for our own faith. And then he shifts. There's a second category. So how do we contend for the faith practically? We, we take responsibility for our own faith, but then we show mercy on others. Okay, um, how, many, how many people in the room as kids were shocked by hearing a flight attendant the first time that you rode on an airplane make the announcement that parents were to put on their own oxygen mask before they put one on their children? I remember it vividly. I think I was like seven years old, and I heard the flight attendant say that, and I was like, what? My parents are to put the oxygen mask on me first because I'm their beloved child, and they're to be good parents. 
here's what Jude is doing. It's the same, it's the same logic. He's saying you can't show mercy to other people. You can't help other people as they wrestle with their faith if you're not taking responsibility for your own faith. Put on your own oxygen mask by building yourself up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by waiting on the promises of God. If you're doing those practices and the person that you care about is starting to wander away from Jesus, you're actually going to have something to say to them that would be helpful. Don't be a busybody, be a disciple of Jesus. And that means that you're growing, and as you're growing, you're going to then be able to turn and help the people around you. And he, he puts it in a way that's really helpful, and this will be really brief. Look at verse 22. Have mercy on those that doubt. Okay, pause there for just a second. That is great news. This has been a book that if you have a tender conscience, can feel a bit like a beatdown. There are people in this room right now that last week, as Andrew was walking through those warnings of apostasy, you have a tender conscience and you felt profound fear about whether or not you were even in the faith. And what Jude is doing here is really powerful. He's saying, he's saying that we're to show mercy to those that are wrestling with doubt, not condemnation. In essence, there's a difference between apostatizing and wrestling with doubt as a disciple. The, the road of discipleship will have seasons where you wrestle with doubt. Sometimes it's doctrinal doubt, and you're trying to figure out, like, hey, man, here's this thing that the Bible teaches and that Christians say is important, and I just don't understand it, and I don't get it, and I don't see the goodness of God in it, and I start to wonder and question and doubt. Sometimes, It's just doubting and questioning whether or not God actually loves you. uh, 2019, 2020, man, like I could tell you guys that God really loves you. I, I had a really hard time experiencing the love of God personally in the midst of betrayal and attack and warfare and exhaustion and physical symptoms and depression. It was just a really difficult couple of years. I wasn't questioning, did Jesus rise from the dead or is God real? I was just like, hey God, I just don't know if you're actually really for me. Show mercy on those that doubt. Okay, if you're doubting today, if you're doubting today, the posture of God towards you is a posture of moving towards you. Jesus, after his resurrection, moved towards Thomas and Thomas's doubt. And we as the people of God need to move towards each other in our doubt. And that is a relational posture. In the midst of those two years that were so profoundly difficult and painful, it was like every direction I turned, it was just a dumpster fire. Everything's hard. Everything's lost. I'm starting to wonder, do I still want to do ministry? And like, you know, most pastors have like an occasional Monday where they'll have some weird fantasy about a different job. Mine usually involves either like being a game warden or like a park ranger. I don't know that their jobs are easier than mine, but the fantasy of those jobs is way cooler than my job. Way cooler than my job. But this was different than that. This wasn't like Monday I'm on a run thinking, oh man, that would be kind of cool to do that job. This was like, I think I want to quit because this job is beating me to death. And I brought that to my friends, to my cohort of pastors and to a few of our elders here at Frontline. I just said, hey man, here's where I'm at. I feel dark. I feel like throwing in the towel. I don't know that I want to do this anymore. And man, they rallied around me with such mercy and compassion that I experienced the love of God. 
And I can honestly say it was them showing mercy on me as I was even doubting God's faithfulness and doubting my calling that helped me to persevere, helped me to get through that and get to the other side where I'm more excited about getting to serve and love our church than I've ever been in in 17 years. Show mercy to each other. In addition, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is really interesting. He's saying, We're to show mercy to those that doubt, but we're to, with real urgency, be vigilant in helping one another when we start to move away from Jesus. We're to fight for each other. We're to pray for each other. We're to warn each other. We're to have hard conversations with each other. This is one of the reasons it's so important that you engage in real Christian community. Christian community is not a silver bullet, and it's no guarantee that it's going to be easy or fun. Like Most of our community groups are, are kind of strange. They're kind of weird. If you don't have anybody weird in your community group, you're probably the weird person in your community group. <laughs> like Community groups are hard, man, and, and it's, not, it's not easy, and it's not particularly exciting. It's just a rhythm of making the choice that the Bible says that we need each other and spiritual friendship matters and we're brothers and sisters and we can't do it alone. And what's so important about it is that if you're in those kind of relationships and you start to get sideways with Jesus, you start to mishandle your wife, you start to believe lies that are contrary to God's word, you start to move away from Jesus and towards the pluralism of the world. Okay, Being in community means that you have people that know you well enough to start to smell that something's off that are going to pray for you, that are going to warn you, that are going to move towards you, that are going to have hard conversations with you. That's what snatching each other out of the fire looks like. And then he gives us a really solemn warning. He says, in addition, we're to show mercy with fear. And this is a really big deal, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's an Old Testament metaphor. It's a picture of being made unclean. Here's what he's saying on a couple levels, I think. I think he's saying we need to be really careful when we move towards a brother or a sister who's in sin, that we don't get puffed up with pride and arrogance as we move towards them in their sin and then fall to the same temptation or to a more subtle temptation to something like pride or self-righteousness. We are to move towards each other when we see a brother or a sister in sin, but the posture of our heart and the vigilance of our heart needs to be really high because it's really easy, man. It's really easy to have a hard conversation with someone about an area where you see them walking away from Jesus and then you turn around and realize three days later, oh man, Like that actually was a moment where I got blindsided and clobbered by my own temptations as I tried to go after them in their sin. Be really careful, really careful. This is why Galatians says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. We gotta be really careful. So here's the logic. And let me just remind you what's happening. Jude wants to help us keep ourselves in the love of God. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? How do you keep growing? How do you love Jesus more in a year than you do today? How do you keep resisting temptation? How do you resist the enemy that wants to destroy you? Well, build yourself up in the faith, right? You got to take responsibility to meet with God, to meet with his love, to know his word. Like, I would say that the greatest desire of my heart for the people of our church 
is that we would be more serious about the presence of God in his word and more single-mindedly focused on meeting with him in his word. Because that's what protects us. It's what renews our minds. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're to wait on the mercy that's coming. And as we're doing those things so that we can grow, we're also to be mindful of each other, showing mercy on those that doubt, sometimes snatching each other out of the fire so we don't shipwreck our faith, and doing so in real caution and vigilance, not thinking that we're somehow the knight in shining armor that's impervious to sin, because we're not. So, Father, we pray that you would help us keep ourselves in your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Pray that even today you would help us to listen to what you're saying to us. Help each of us to be responsive and even have a level of recommitment to meeting with you in your word and meeting with you in community. And even as we come to the Lord's Supper right now, we thank you that this is one of the places you call us to meet with you. So come and feed us. Come and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. As we come to this meal, we would invite all baptized Christians to partake in this meal. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we would ask you to not eat this meal, not because we want to embarrass you, but because this is a faith meal. It's a faith meal, and it won't help you if you don't have faith in Jesus. And if you're ready to follow Christ, we want to talk to you. We want to help you take next steps. And if you have questions about following Jesus, we want to talk to you. And as we come to this meal, and we take the bread that points us to the body of Jesus that was broken for us, we acknowledge and confess that the deepest hunger of our life is for the presence of God. It's for the presence of God. What we need more than vacation, more than more money, more than a new marriage, more than a boyfriend, more than a girlfriend, more than the right career, what we need more desperately than anything else, even when we don't know it, is to hear the very word of God, which is our food.